0: From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Like Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, we'll look at climate change solutions and learn about the research and work being done at the Wisconsin State Climatology Office. Then we'll learn about the House of History, a project dedicated to sharing local black LGBTQ plus history.
1: My goal is to get the word out that we're here. And a lot of the sacrifices that were made by some of the people who are no longer here, their legacy can live on.
0: Plus, learn about a program that provides musical instruments to young people.
2: The first time a student has an instrument in their hand is really one of the most special moments that we get to experience because it's the start of a very personal relationship with your art.
0: All that's coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us. WUWM and NPR are focusing on solutions to climate change this week. You'll hear stories on Lake Effect and throughout the day about ways to mitigate the impacts of climate change. The Wisconsin State Climatology Office is one of many institutions in the state working on climate solutions. They collect, analyze, and share climate information as well as provide climate science education. Steve Varus is the director of the office. He joins WUWM environmental reporter Susan Bentz to talk about his role and how the work of his office helps the people of Wisconsin.
3: You've been the interim head since the beginning of this year and now assume it officially that means also there's officially some money now that's flowing in
4: as of the beginning of this calendar year 2023 the office has money for things that it just didn't have before Uh and so for instance one of the things that we're going to be developing is more of a research arm Uh, That's something that just we didn't have the capacity to do until now but that's an important part of a climate office understanding Wisconsin's weather and climate better, coming up with decision support tools that can help say farmers decide when to plant better, when to harvest, when to spray, so their operations can be more efficient. We also have a lot more capacity for now communications and outreach. We just hired a communications expert and with a full-time assistant state climatologist to be hired by the end of this year will really increase our capacity in addition to having some student support, a graduate student and some undergraduate interns doing research. So we're hugely increasing the capacity of the office and finally giving Wisconsin the office it deserves.
3: I would think there's already plenty of research going on. Is it targeting agriculture?
4: There is a lot of research going on at the university. It's a research university after mm-hmm. all. But most of that research is not directed specifically toward Wisconsin climate. And so this is gonna be very targeted. So questions that have come up in over the years that simple ones like the data show that Wisconsin has become snowier by a lot over the years, going back over a century. But is that a real trend or is it different ways that we're measuring snow now that, that cause that to be a false kind of trend, just a, an apparent trend that isn't real? We've also not seen the increase in extreme heat over the years in Wisconsin the way we would expect in a warming climate. Why is that? Our summers are getting warmer but we're not having as many, or we're not seeing an increase at least in the really hot days, 90, 95, 100 degree days. That's puzzling. We can try to figure out why. And then there's more of an applied research wing to this, too. So things like how can we help farmers make better decisions?
3: Are there currently counties that have stations, or is this brand new?
4: So there were some stations that were part of um, Agricultural Research Network in Wisconsin, but only about a half a dozen or so. So those have been incorporated right away this year into Mm -hmm. the Mesonet. And then we had outsourced to Michigan for some stations in the northeastern part of the state toward the UP, especially in Door County. And those have now recently transitioned to Wisconsin. So right now, I think there's about 14, 15 Mesonet stations in the network, but. We're going to be increasing those over time, trying to be strategic about where to put them in order. Mm -hmm. Uh, But having one per county will mean that we have great spatial coverage across the state. And it is up to the, almost up to the minute, every five minutes, there's updates in these weather variables. And including things like soil moisture, which is really important this year with the drought. And that's a capacity we've never had before.
3: What would your role be? Will you be funneling your research efforts into it, or will you be directing others who are doing that research?
4: Yes, yeah, so the director's role is is yet to be fully determined. It's certainly there's going to be a lot of administrative tasks that need to be handled, managing the, the actions uh, of the, the office strategic planning what can we do with our resources uh, doing a lot of travel and outreach conference going I want to do some of the research myself partnering with other staff members finding collaborations with farmers and and, uh, other stakeholders in Wisconsin finding out what people in the state want from the office and seeing how we can deliver it because there's a wealth of weather and climate data out there Mm -hmm. but People don't always know how to find it for their purposes or whether it's reliable, some of it's technical. And so providing information and interpretation are two roles that the office can and and is doing. And um, I and others in the office can continue to make progress in that.
3: I wanted to move into Wiki. Maybe we'll start there. Tell us what Wiki is and how it came to life and you were one of the co-founders, right?
4: Wasn't a co-founder, but I was involved from the beginning. Wiki Wisconsin Initiative on Climate Change Impacts was formed in 2007, so we're over 15 years old now, and it was formed as a partnership between the Wisconsin DNR and the University of Wisconsin-Madison's Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies. But Wiki has grown a lot since 2007. So it was founded with the purpose that, hey, Wisconsin's climate is changing and we're having some impacts and we need to figure out a way to deal with these. And that continues to be the driving force for Wiki. But now, unfortunately, those climate impacts have become starker and starker. And um, as a result, our, our breadth of study has expanded. So now we have 14 different working groups dealing with topics ranging from wildlife impacts, forestry, infrastructure, tourism, all sorts of things, human health, and, uh, but yet, the, it continues to, to look for solutions, so it's very pragmatic, and it's, um, it, we just had our big assessment report come out last year. It really helps to lay out what's happening in terms of climate change in Wisconsin, what are the impacts, and then what can we do about it. By doing this every five or ten years, it's a little bit like a census, you know, mm-hmm. you keep track over time and get mm-hmm. a, a long-term picture. But that's the plan, is that Wiki will continue to issue these every, say, five to ten years, and and um, give people a, a current assessment, a snapshot of what conditions are like here.
3: We had some earlier email conversations about case studies or different projects that work groups are testing. Has that been happening all along since its inception?
4: Different kinds of of adaptation projects have been underway, some of them involving wiki, some of them not involving wiki, but we we highlight them. For instance, right now there's a project at Rush Creek State Natural Area. Try to figure out, do some research on what kind of plants are most suitable for a changing climate. And so that's uh, a project involving Different wiki members. Um, our infrastructure working group is involved in projects to look at, say, stormwater runoff, and and do we need bigger culverts, and how is that going to affect stream crossings, and so on. So, very pragmatic. Um, some of them are things that just that just emerge, like you know, in in. 2008 we had the big uh, Lake Delton uh, washout of the road and that spurred a lot of interest in uh, you know, heavier precipitation events and what can we do to, to be more resilient to those. And so, unfortunately, some of it's reactive. Depending on what happens, we, we realize, oh boy, we're, we're not really prepared for this. And some of it is more proactive. We know that we're likely to see more um, heat in the future. Um, what can we do in terms of building materials? Cooler roofs, for instance, green roofs, whiter roofs, things of that nature. Um, we're pretty certain we're going to see more heavy rainfalls. And green infrastructure is a, a nice solution for that, protecting wetlands permeable pavement, um, various strategies such as those to try to, to cope with the, the situation. But it certainly isn't an either-or. It's, there's sort of an unfortunate split among some people to think, well, either address climate change focusing on reducing carbon emissions, or you give up and you say, okay, we're just going to deal with the impacts. But we need to do both. Yeah, obviously, you know, Wiki is mostly about impacts, but we also encourage steps to reduce the problem from the beginning by reducing carbon emissions. But we we can't be everything to everybody, mm-hmm. and our bread and butter has always been adaptation, and that's mainly who Wiki has attracted folks who are mostly in the adaptation arena.
3: If you could do exactly what you wanted, how would you spend your? your time and energies?
4: Well, I'm a researcher. I'm trained as a researcher first and foremost, and and I have lots of Ideas and questions about Wisconsin climate change that I've accumulated over the years. So I guess if I were somebody uh, waved a magic wand and said you can do whatever you want, and we'll give you all the resources for it, I would turn my attention to research and uh, and and try to provide services, try to answer practical questions that, that people address to say the office um, to try to to improve their lives. You know what what can we do in terms of uh, adjusting to more extreme weather events? Um, How can we use our resources in a more efficient way to to cope with climate change? So um, I I guess, you know, it's a combination of curiosity-driven research as a scientist like I am, and then being a global citizen and realizing, wow, you know, we've got a problem and we need to do something about it. And putting our heads in the sand and just saying, oh, maybe things will be okay, uh, really at this point is not even feasible.
0: Steve Varis is the director of the Wisconsin State Climatology Office. He spoke with WUWM's Susan Bence. This conversation was a part of WUWM and NPR's Climate Solutions Week coverage. You'll hear more reporting on ways to mitigate the impacts of climate change throughout the week, and you can find out more at wuwm.com. October is LGBTQ History Month, and we can't celebrate and learn from people and events of the past if they're not documented and shared. Janice Toy has long been a part of Milwaukee's LGBTQ history. She's one of Milwaukee's most legendary entertainers and one of the founding members of Sheba, or Sisters Helping Each Other Battle Adversity, a support group for black women of trans experience. TOY is on a mission to make sure Milwaukee's Black LGBTQ history is preserved and shared through the House of History. The House of History is a project dedicated to collecting and sharing local Black LGBTQ history through interviews, as well as uncovering and sharing photographs and other artifacts that tell the stories of Black LGBTQ people here in Milwaukee. To share more about it, Toy joins me now and explains how she wanted to go from being a part of local black LGBTQ plus history to preserving
1: it. Well, with the House of History, you know, this gives me the opportunity to I guess document a lot of the girls who have passed, you know, I guess to document, you know, their life legacy. You know, because sometimes when people die, you know, we forget and a lot of the younger transgender community, they don't know the struggles that a lot of the girls had to go through before them. You know, now there's a lot of programs, you know, that's targeted to kind of help transgender. But when I first came out, a lot of those programs weren't available, you know, so they don't know the struggles and the hard work that the older girls had to put in, you know, and a lot of the newer girls, you know, that's just coming out, and don't even know that it was a girl who, um, you know, who the struggles that she went to to get, you know, it passed for us to get our name changed and, you know, to just to be able to live, you know, this lifestyle that people take, you know, advantage of, you know, so.
0: Can you share how it was born? I understand you connected with Bryce Smith of the LGBTQ Milwaukee, right? Mm hmm. Yes. Yeah. Can you share how you both came together to bring this idea
1: about? Well, he was interviewing just some Sheba, you know, members and it was just like a instant connection me and him had, you know, and then he just, you know, just introduced me to other different, you know, programs and stuff that he had and, you know, ideas that, you know, he wanted to, you know, bring about and I just jumped aboard and it was like an instant connection.
0: Yeah, he was originally in touch with you to learn more about SHIBA, which is sisters helping each other battling adversity. And talking about the programs that exist today, uh, you're one of the founding members of SHIBA. I'd love to learn more about why and how you started this organization and and what it looked like in its early days compared to now.
1: Well, SHIBA, it was a group because, I mean, I was just one of the first members that joined. But, I mean, it started off with sisters helping each other battle AIDS. But then a lot of girls kind of were, I guess they didn't like the title, you know, of AIDS being associated, you know, with being, you know, transgender or whatever. Because I guess a lot of people got a misunderstanding that everybody that was in the group or in order to be a part of the group, you had to be, you know, HIV positive, which wasn't the case. And so, you know, they wanted to take away that, that negative title. So then it got changed to, you know, adversity or whatever. But, you know, we involve. you know, now it's kind of like, you know, they help with um, a lot of employment. Um, they do um, clothing drives. Um, they do more outings. They offer a um, needle exchange. They offer programs to help girls get um, hormones, you know, because I guess in the earlier days, you know, a lot of those programs weren't available you know to us as transgender you know a lot of you know people if you didn't have insurance or um you just didn't have the money you know you were just buying it you know from off the street you know whatever you know so it's kind of like we you know offer a lot of different things to help girls you know to stay on the right path you know um because a lot of times you know people think that black trans women or trans you know people in general you know the only thing that we were eligible for was either sex work or doing drag shows. You know, we couldn't have like a a regular job. We couldn't, you know, have the things that a normal person in society, you know, they felt like, you know, we weren't, you know, entitled to those things. You know, and now Sheba is, you know, we promote jobs and and getting people, you know, into, you know, careers and different things like that.
0: If you're comfortable, would you mind sharing about your own journey coming out and your relationship with your mother and how she influenced your outlook and activism in helping other people in the roles you play yourself?
1: I had a very strong, you know, relationship with my mother. You know, my mother, unfortunately, you know, I lost her a few years ago due to COVID. But, you know, she was a very strong person in my life. I mean, like I said, we were very, very close. You know, she didn't. Look at me, you know, differently, or treated me any differently. You know, she always gave me the um the motivation that I needed and pushed me, you know, to want different things in my life. And she always made me believe that I could do anything, regardless of my sexuality or because I chose to be trans. You know, she always, you know, told me that you know, I could always come to her and I could talk to her about anything. You know, I didn't have to feel embarrassed or, you know, and she opened her, you know, her home to any of, you know, all of my friends. Like if people, you know, didn't have anything to eat, they were able to come to her house and sit down and get a meal. You know, if they needed a place to stay, she opened up her house to them. You know, my mother was very loving, you know, and very supportive, you know, of my lifestyle. And I guess because of that, I was able to give back. And I guess I just felt, you know, like there was always something I wanted to do to help others because I had was fortunate enough to have someone in my life, you know, because a lot of times, you know, family members, they turn their back on you once they find out, you know, that you're trans or you're even living into a gay lifestyle, you know, they turn their back on you. And I had a strong support system. You know, my family was very supportive. And so I just wanted other girls to share in that, that, you know, they too could, you know, have someone in their corner to pick them up. You know, I wanted them to feel that family support, you know, that I felt coming up.
0: What did you discover about yourself when you took on the role of interviewing people and these members of the Black LGBTQ community?
1: Everyone has a story to tell. And, sometimes you know because we had like a general questions you know that we kind of like asked everyone but everyone had like a different answer and some things you didn't even know about i didn't even know about you know some of the individuals and i've been knowing some of them for years you know but when you start getting into asking certain questions you just got you know all these different answers, and then it was opening up you know because you know it's like a it was more like a a friendship type of thing, so they were comfortable with sharing these stories, something that you know they probably wouldn't have told anyone else, but because they felt comfortable with our friendship, you know they opened up, and they didn't have a problem with you know sharing these different things and some of these stories I was even blown away by,
0: and along with the people you talk to the sense of place and community also plays a big role for Milwaukee's queer community. And most people are familiar with Walker's Point being the area with most of the city's gay bars, but can you share the history of the gay bars on Milwaukee's north side and the role that they played in your life?
1: A lot of the bars that I guess I went to on the north side um, when I first came out are no longer here. But when they were open, you know, it just gave me uh, a place of, being able to be myself, I didn't have to hide who I was, I didn't have to pretend, you know, and put on a a fake smile, you know, I could let my hair down, you know, I could just be myself, and it was a a, a loving, you know, situation, because it was like, you were around like-minded people, you know, that didn't judge you, or didn't look down on you because of something that you had on, or because, you know, you were different, you know, it was just, I guess just a a loving, you know, situation, you know, to be around people, you know, that didn't judge you, you know, and you were able to have a good time.
0: Throughout your memories or the interviews you've been conducting, can you share with us uh, a person that you interviewed whose stories are not just impactful, but a story that you think is, is worth sharing right now before the website launches?
1: Well, I guess... The one story that kind of touched me a little more was the one with um, Ronnie Grace. You know, I've been knowing him for years, and he's been one of the facilitators at Diverse Resilient with Toshiba. You know, I guess, you know, hearing his struggle and, you know, a lot of the things that, you know, he went through in other states that he lived in and things, you know, with health issues and, you know, just a lot of things across the board that he was dealing with. It was just, very heartwarming you know to know that throughout of everything that he went through you know he's still here and he made you know different sacrifices and a lot of things that he did you know help the community and a lot of the programs that he started and you know was a part of are successful you know because of him and so you know i was just glad that i was able to you know learn a lot of you know different things I was just touched by, you know, his interview.
0: And with you yourself learning new things with people you've known for years, collecting their histories, how do you hope the House of History Project will connect with and impact Black LGBTQ plus Milwaukeeans especially?
1: Well, you know, I guess my goal is to get the word out, you know, that we're here. And a lot of the, the sacrifices that were made by some of the people who are no longer here, their legacy can live on, you know, because everyone in our family, you know, has someone in the LGBT community, whether they want to admit it or not, you know, it's someone in somebody's family, you know, whether they're in the closet or they're not. And, you know, their stories, you know, need to be told. This was a way that you know, it was it was a life changing experience. You know, and it was a way to to make history and you know to keep history you know going. And I think that this website you know would give that, I guess, that opportunity you know to to get that word out and get that connection you know that we need.
0: Absolutely. Well, Janice, I want to thank you so much for your time today and for all your work in preserving
1: this local history. I would thank you so much for taking the time out to talk to me and you know, just being, you know, that that connection that we need, you know, to get the word out.
0: Janice Toy is the mother of the House of History, a project dedicated to collecting and sharing local Black LGBTQ plus history. You can find some of the stories collected through the LGBT Milwaukee app, and there will be an upcoming website for the House of History. In about 20 minutes, we'll learn about the power of providing musical instruments to young people. But first, we'll play a music game with a Milwaukee Latin dance instructor. She helps pair dances with songs coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Maybe it's electrifying the dance floor. Maybe it's softly accompanying the cooking in Abuela's kitchen. Whatever the case, Latin music comes in as many different styles as the places it originated. And for some, it's hard to know what music calls for what dance, whether that's a cha cha cha, a bomba, or a salsa step. That's why today, for Hispanic Heritage Month, we're talking to Carlise Kelly-Vadula, a multidisciplinary movement artist from Panama who runs Panadanza Dance Studio in Bayview. Since she's trained in all these Latin dance styles, WUWM's Mayan Silver asks her to match songs with types of dance.
5: The first track I'm breaking out of the record collection is a live version of Oya Como Va by Tito Puente. And I'm so excited to hear what Carlise has to say.
6: Okay, I'm in for the challenge. We're gonna do it.
5: Oh yeah! This is a very well-known one. We'll see what you think of it. We jumped ahead for the sake of brevity. So
6: I I will always love that song. Actually it was one of the songs that I really identified when I came to the United States because it's like everybody knows this song and it also brings me home all the time. Uh and it all the instruments are so beautifully layered out for the dancers. You know, one of the ones that I really Hone in for cha 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 is the guido, or in some countries called the guaracha, which is the gourd instrument that goes right. And in cha cha cha, it really marks the steps of the dancers. And then you get the congas in there who are also then marking the steps of cha 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 in between. Then the forward and back. So, forward, cha cha cha, back, cha cha cha, forward, cha cha cha, back. And then you get the bass that's also helping that groove. And the piano comes in, it really, really just grooves all together. But cha 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 is so beautiful because you
5: really have to listen to that cha 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 in the middle. Then your answer would be as to which type of music it is Cha cha cha! <laughs> <laughs> Excellent! And so basically, it's quick steps. It's like a triple step, right? Right. Is what
6: you're talking about. Right, right. It's a triple step in the middle, and then it hits forward, or back, or side, side. So, but the important part is that you are marking that cha-cha-cha. That was Oye Como Va by the great, late, great Tito Puente. Yes, and you know, I met Tito Puente Jr. many years back at a Salsa Congress in St. Louis, and he said, I love that you dance on two, because my father... really guided himself by the dancers right if the dancer was offbeat, he would say dance on two dance on two because you're messing me up (laughs) and that's how crucial these dance spaces were because they fed off each other the musician was always watching the dancers and vice versa so dancing on two the cha-cha-cha would that mean one two three four and five Six, seven, eight, and one, two, three, cha, cha, cha. Six, seven, cha, cha, cha. Two, three, cha, cha, cha. So, Tito Puentes would always look for that because that would accent, that would allow him to play for that right beat.
5: And are you, are you dancing? Is it a partner dance? The cha, cha, cha?
6: It can be. Back in the '70s, it. If people love to shine by themselves, which is what I love dancing by myself, too. I like, you don't need a partner to come to my class. It's a beautiful thing. I just love dancing by myself. You can just find me anywhere in town watching a band. And I'm like, you don't need a partner. You need yourself. Yeah, and, and it's beautiful to dance with a partner. But that's the, the beautiful thing about Latin dance is that you don't have to be with a partner. You can do it by yourself, too.
5: That's great. See everybody out there listening, if you're timid and you feel like, oh, I don't have somebody to dance with, just go for it. Yes,
6: and you will inspire other people to get up and dance with you.
5: Yeah, no
6: sidelines standing. There's no need to watch purses. No, (laughs) you need to get up in the middle of it. I've been known for that since I was little. All the quinceañeras, I'm like, my mom would be looking for me. Oh, there she is. in the middle of the dance floor, and then everybody would get up and dance with me.
5: You're tuned into Lake Effect. I'm WEWM's Mahayan Silver playing Guess That Style of Dance with Carlise Kelly of Panadanza Dance Company. Next up, we're playing parts of Te Venero by C. Tananga and Omara Portuando. Carlise will identify the dance style.
4: Te venero.
5: Por más que contigo regañe. So, so this one is, um, well, I'm not going to tell you.
4: <laughs>
6: was that Omara Portuondo? It was! Yes.
4: I love her. She's coming so
6: much. to Milwaukee. She? Uh, yes, this fall. I was at the last concert of hers and I, I just melted. It was so magical. I really, really, really love watching her. It's Longtime Cuban singer, right? Yes. Yeah. So, that one is a tricky one. Thank you for that one. Because it starts out in a bolero type of feel, it's slower, and you can imagine abuelo y abuela dancing to that. And then it really kicks up, and that's when you get the real cha cha cha. Cha-cha. The bell, the cowbell really tells you on this one. It's so beautiful. I love that. Thank you for that song. Great. So another
5: cha-cha-cha. Another cha-cha-cha. Excellent. Okay. So moving along, we've got this one. It's Amor del Bueno by Ramon Cordero.
6: Oh, I love that you took us to the mountains of the Dominican Republic. Yay. That's some bachata right there. Yay. That's some beautiful, pure bachata. And the way I know that is through the guitar right away. And then there's a hit, one. Two. which actually reminds you a little bit of the cha-cha, but it's a different kind of hit. So sometimes if you see a a Dominican dancer, you can tell them, oh, that's also a step in cha-cha-cha because it's a similar hit, one, two, three, four, and one. Yeah, so bachata, you would know it because it's usually guitar, and then it's got the bass. Yes. And then the really, really instrument that sets it apart is always the bongo. And that's where you get the little hip action. One, two, three, four, and five.
5: One, two, three, four. So that's a beautiful bachata. When you break down all these components, like does it just come to you in, in a big flood or do you like, I, how do you identify these things? How does it work in your brain? You're just like laying out the components.
6: The first thing that always stands out to me is what is a bass drum? What's the one thing that doesn't ever change, right? Because everything else, the melodies, it's like the side talk. Hey, look at me, look at me, look at me. But if you come back, you always want to find that drum, that bass drum. And that's usually the bass and the main drum that never changes or it has slight variations. But usually I will hone in on that bongo and I'm like, okay, yep, this is definitely bachata. Or, um, you know, with cha 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 is the conga, right? So always shut shut down the the chatter, right? And come back to what is the main main drum that just always keeps the groove going. And most of the time that will always be my answer.
5: That's the heart. That's the like heart. The heart yeah. of it. Um, and then the movement for the bachata, it's it, open, the, close, the b- open, tap.
6: Open, close, open tap open close if you can imagine that it can travel in any direction it could be in place or it could be spread out what i love about cha 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 and bachata and these kind of dances is that they're born out of tight spaces right and if you can think of that in every sense of its word right so When you're dancing at home at your abuela's kitchen or in the pantry, right? We have those little glass figures that we've gotten for um, uh, baptism and first confirmations and all that. So you don't wanna go big and, you know, enojar a la abuela. You know, you don't wanna make grandma mad by, you know, by accidentally knocking these things out. So you want to keep your steps smooth, but you wanna keep them tight and close. (laughs)
5: Nice, nice. Um, Great, okay, so we've got a little bachata there. I'm gonna play you something else now. See what you think. The next track up, Cumbia de los Paritos by Grupo Fantasma. Again, Carlis has no idea what type of music I'm going to play and she'll identify the dance style. A little futuristic there.
6: First of all, I just wanna be in your headphones all the time, because okay. these are amazing. Ah, uh, yeah, cumbia, cumbia. And the way I know that is, again, by that widow. Ding, ticky, ding, ticky, ding, ticky, ding, ticky, ding, ticky, ding. Dong, ding, dong, and the bass. Dong, dong, ting dong, dong, king, dong, dong, king. Ah, and cumbia has such a beautiful way. It's like a breath. It like pulls you in on the end, and then it lets you out. It's like one, and two, and three, and. Four. And, and it's got a little bounce and a groove to that. And it's just so unique. You know, and it has traveled all the way, all through the world, you know. It started in Colombia, in Panama. As you know, Panama used to be part of Colombia. So our music is, everywhere you go, it's very Cumbia-like. But then it went to Mexico. They took it and did a whole nother spin on it and their cumbia is very partner and lots of turns and then you take that and they put it in Argentina and they have a whole another style of cumbia so it's it's just so beautiful because in Panama and in, in Colombia is um, very much so in place and it's about how graceful you can be with this pollera la pollera colorada is what, another very famous cumbia song Sometimes you even put a candle on top of your head and see how graceful can you be with this thing and not it falling off. Wow.
5: Yeah. Yeah. Talk about a challenge. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's such is a it beautiful lit? dance. It is. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the whole challenge. <laughs> oh my God. What if you're scared of fire? <laughs> <laughs> I
6: love that you know that these dances also have a challenge to go with it. You know, like Mexico also has some ribbon dances, and in Cuba they have Colombia, which is a mainly male-dominated dance, but now it's changing, which I'm so glad. But it, you know, they take a bottle or stairs. How can you shine? all through stairs you know you how can you make a dance on stairs and really you know they do flips and stuff so it's it's really just so beautiful to also see how obstacles are put in to show off your skills
0: Charlie's Kelly Badula is the owner of Panadanza Dance Company in Bayview. She spoke with WUWM's Mayon Silver, and you can hear more of their conversation tomorrow on Lake Effect. Got a dusty old instrument at home? We'll tell you how you can give it a new life and maybe change a young person's life at the same time. Keep listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Like Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Do you remember playing an instrument in school? Or maybe you know how expensive it can be to get instruments for your children. This Saturday, the Wisconsin Conservatory of Music is holding an instrument drive where they will collect used instruments to donate to kids beginning their musical journeys. Like Effect Sam Wood shares more about the drive and the impact it can have on a young person.
7: That's 7th grader Aaron Cowap playing ACDC's Thunderstruck on vibraphone with his teacher Mitchell Shiner on piano. It's here in a windowless room at the end of a long hallway in a nondescript strip mall that Aaron imagines himself alongside his idol, Lars Ulrich, the drummer and co-founder of Metallica. I just really idolize him. He is such a good drummer. I am honestly probably not going to be as good as him, but... Don't say that about yourself. Yeah, one day when I'm like... Older and, like, stronger and able to play better. Yeah. Well, listen, I'm sure Lars didn't peak in seventh grade either, so you got got some time. Aaron sells himself short, because let me tell you, the kid's got range. Not only is he learning rock and metal classics, but he's also venturing into bossa nova with the guidance of Mitch. Aaron's always been around drums. At first, it was the hand drums his mom got him when he was little. And after a while convincing his mom that he was actually going to stick with drumming, his mom got him an electric drum set and eventually a traditional percussive set. The drum set he has now was donated through the Wisconsin Conservatory of Music's Instrument Drive, where the conservatory collects used instruments, refurbishes them, and redistributes them to young people like Aaron, who are just starting their musical journeys. Here's what Aaron remembers when he first laid eyes on the set he'd be receiving. I looked at the drum set and I was like, this is the most beautiful thing I've seen in my life. We set it up in the parking lot, and I was like, dude. I did not expect it to be that big, but like, and the first time I played it, I was like, oh my god, that sounds so great. It sounds so much better than an electric one. Aaron's teacher, Mitchell Shiner, was there when Aaron first got his drum set. And this isn't the first time Mitch has been there to see a young person's face light up when seeing their instrument for the first time,
2: and he knows how
7: special that moment can be.
2: The first time a student has an instrument in their hand is really one of the most special moments that we get to experience because it it's the start of a very personal relationship with your art and with your practice and with your um, with your music. And for Aaron, um, we I think it was a pretty cold, damp afternoon. You all came by the conservatory and I said, okay, we're gonna we have all this. All this gear down in the basement. We have to get it all in the get it all in the elevator, and then get it in your get in the van. So we set the whole thing up in the parking lot, like Aaron said, and we played a little bit on it. And it's just you could I could you could really tell that's really where the magic can start um, is by having your own uh, your own piece of gear that you get to work with for pretty much the rest of your life. Teresa Drews,
7: Director of Education and Piano Faculty at the Wisconsin Conservatory of Music, helps organize the instrument drives that gave Aaron and hundreds of other kids their own instruments. The goal is to collect instruments gathering dust in attics or storage, refurbish them, and get them in the hands of kids. This year's drive is happening this Saturday, so I sat down with Teresa to learn more about the drive and how people can donate instruments that may be just laying around their house. But first, I wanted to ask Teresa about her own musical background and what she was playing when she was Aaron's age.
8: Wow, that's nobody's asked me that for a really long time. <laughs> um, music was always my thing. I grew up in a smaller town, and everybody was in the marching band, and everybody was in the choir, sure. and I was in the jazz choir, and I was in community theater, and... Um, so I actually played the trumpet, too. Most people don't know that, okay. um, and the French horn, um, but I played piano at my community theater in the summer, and I sang, and I did kind of every, everything you could, okay. everything you could do. I took every opportunity, um, but piano was always my, my. I felt like that was my musical voice, was piano. Yeah. So I, I went to college and graduate school, and my degrees are all in, in music performance and in classical piano.
7: So, yeah, trumpet, horn, and piano, it sounds like a jazz band must have, been really, must have really been your thing.
8: I, I actually was in the jazz band in middle and high school.
7: <laughs> well, so, uh, fast forward to today, and you're, you're organizing this instrument drive on, on Saturday. First off, can you tell me more about what the instrument drive is and what it aims to accomplish?
8: Sure. This is the fourth time we've done the instrument drive. It began in 2017, We've done it every two years, um, so this will be the fourth time we've held it. Um, We collect instruments on the day of the instrument drive, but we actually also accept them on a rolling basis throughout the year. Um, This day is a great day to bring um, some focus to the drive. Um, We accept any instruments that are in working order, so you don't need to have them evaluated by a professional, but they should be able to play. <laughs> the keys go down, the button, you know, they, the, the valves work in some sort. Um, but we do spend upwards of at least $200 to $250 average to repair every instrument before it goes in the hands of a, a student.
7: Yeah. Well, and that was going to be my next question is for people who are listening to this and, and wondering, you know, how used is too used? Like, uh, so you mentioned like, you know, the keys have to be attached and, or the, and the, the strings have to work and, and all that. But Is there things that you would like people to know before they donate an instrument um, to be thinking about um, as far as, um, is this an instrument I should donate?
8: Sure. Things like strings can easily be replaced. Um, Off the cuff, if it's a trumpet and it's missing one of the valves, that's a whole other story. (laughs) Um, You know, if a major part is not existing on the instrument. Um, But I would say if it looks like it's intact and it looks like it's in playable condition or you, you can play something on it. Um, I think that we're, we'd be good to go most of the time. Um, we don't we don't turn people away, but we do ask that you know you bring something in that we're able that you be proud of you know handing over to another sure. to a child. Yeah.
7: Can you talk about the the impact when you've done this drive before? Why is it important?
8: Oh, it's important for for so many reasons. Um, to have your own instrument. The thing I think is really interesting about this drive is that it is often people looking into their closets or their attics or their basement and something's just sitting there. Mm-hmm. But it could be life-changing once yeah. you get it in the person's hands who can really you know, use it and has ownership over it. And it's something that they're going to spend so much time one-on-one with. It's actually kind of remarkable. I think about how much time I've spent at the piano. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like another you know, figure, another character in my life is the piano. I mean, the, you spend so much time practicing and rehearsing and um, and that can make such a huge impact on someone. There have been some times that we've made presentations at schools. Um, we've worked at St. Josephat. We've also worked at Golda Meir, where we presented upwards of 20-plus instruments at a time, which is pretty exciting, and it's like one, two, three, and they open the cases, and I, that's pretty magical um, to see that. And I've been there for some of those experiences. Most of the time, it's, it's one at a time. But similar to Aaron and his mom coming in and picking up the drum kit and having that time to look at it maybe with their teacher and, and know that you get to take it home. And and then you get to hear what it sounds like in your house. I mean, that's a whole nother thing too. Like that instrument has never been played in your home, which I think is pretty pretty incredible
7: that's beautiful it's like you're you're donating to someone extension of their future selves yeah. which contributes a little bit more than just you know it collecting dust <laughs> in an attic or Absolutely. in a, in a basement so for if someone's listening to this and they'd like oh yeah I, I do have that that cello in the in the attic or you know, that, that trombone that's just kind of been sitting around in a corner, um, I should donate that. Um, can you talk about the logistics of that that donation drive and, and what's going to happen this Saturday?
8: Sure. We appreciate it, if possible, to have cases for your instruments, but we will accept them without cases. Um, speaking of that, if you just have an instrument case, mm-hmm. we also accept those oh. and other instrument accessories, because some people do turn instruments in without a case. Um, we are accepting instruments at the McIntosh Goodrich Mansion, which is our main location on Prospect, that's 1584 North Prospect, um, from 10 to 5. Our Audubon Court Shopping Center location, which is in Fox Point Bayside area, it's at 333 West Brown Deer Road. We're accepting donations from 10 until 5. Um, also, two of our partners who have worked with us, we we purchase instruments through them for other things. They do lots of repairs for us, and they do a lot of repairs of our instruments that go through the instrument drive, both Brass Bell Music and Music and Arts. Brass Bell Music Store is located in Glendale at 210 West Silver Spring Drive. They're accepting donations for our drive from 10 until 4. Also, Music and Arts, which is located in Muskego, will be accepting donations from 10 to 4, and their address is 12805 West Janesville Road.
7: So you heard Teresa, if you have an instrument just laying around at home, this Saturday is a great time to do some cleaning around the house and help young people like Aaron keep their beat going. For Lake Effect, I'm Sam Woods.
0: That was Teresa Drews, Director of Education and Piano Faculty at the Wisconsin Conservatory of Music. She spoke with Lake Effect, Sam Woods. If you have a used instrument you'd like to donate, visit wuwm.com for more information about this Saturday's drive. And that's Lake Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. If you've missed any of today's conversations or you'd like to take us on the go, download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you listen to your podcast to hear all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll dive into the history of Central Library, particularly the grand building and the changes it's experienced over the past 125 years. That's tomorrow at noon on Lake Effect, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.